Chapters 1 and 2 of Book 3 of Les Miserables, Volume 4, by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algie Pug. Les Miserables, Volume 4, by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book 3. The House in the Rue Plumet, Chapters 1 and 2 Chapter 1. The House with the Secret About the middle of the last century, a chief justice in the Parliament of Paris, having a mistress and concealing the fact, for at that period the grand seigneurs displayed their mistresses, and the bourgeois concealed them, had a little house built in the Faubourg Saint-Germain, in the deserted Rue Blomet, which is now called Rue Plumet, not far from the spot which was then designated as Combat des Animaux. This house was composed of a single-storied pavilion, two rooms on the ground floor, two chambers on the first floor, a kitchen downstairs, a boudoir upstairs, an attic under the roof, the whole preceded by a garden with a large gate opening on the street. This garden was about an acre and a half in extent. This was all that could be seen by passers-by, but behind the pavilion there was a narrow courtyard, and at the end of the courtyard a low building consisting of two rooms and a cellar, a sort of preparation destined to conceal a child and nurse in case of need. This building communicated in the rear by a masked door, which opened by a secret spring with a long, narrow, paved, winding corridor, open to the sky, hemmed in with two lofty walls, which, hidden with wonderful art, and lost, as it were, between garden enclosures and cultivated land, all of whose angles and detours it followed, ended in another door, also with a secret lock which opened a quarter of a league away, almost in another quarter, in the solitary extremity of the Rue de Babylon. Through this the Chief Justice entered, so that even those who were spying on him and following him would merely have observed that the Justice betook himself every day in a mysterious way somewhere, and would never have suspected that to go to the Rue de Babylon was to go to the Rue Blomet. Thanks to clever purchasers of land, the Magistrate had been able to make a secret, sewer-like passage on his own property, and consequently without interference. Later on, he had sold, in little parcels, for gardens and market gardens, the lots of ground adjoining the corridor, and the proprietors of these lots on both sides thought they had a party wall before their eyes, and did not even suspect the long paved ribbon winding between two walls amid their flower beds and their orchards. Only the birds beheld this curiosity. It is probable that the linnets and tomtits of the last century gossiped a great deal about the Chief Justice. The pavilion, built of stone in the taste of Monsard, wainscoted and furnished in the Watteau style, rocaille on the inside, old-fashioned on the outside, walled in with a triple hedge of flowers, had something discreet, coquettish, and solemn about it, as befits the caprice of love and magistracy. This house and corridor, which have now disappeared, were in existence fifteen years ago. In ninety-three, a coppersmith had purchased the house 
with the idea of demolishing it, but had not been able to pay the price. The nation made him bankrupt, so that it was the house which demolished the coppersmith. After that, the house remained uninhabited, and fell slowly to ruin, as does every dwelling to which the presence of man does not communicate life. It had remained fitted with its old furniture, was always for sale or to let, and the ten or a dozen people who passed through the Rue Plumet were warned of the fact by a yellow and illegible bit of writing which had hung on the garden wall since 1819. Towards the end of the Restoration, these same passers-by might have noticed that the bill had disappeared, and that even the shutters on the first floor were open. The house was occupied, in fact. The windows had short curtains, a sign that there was a woman about. In the month of October, 1829, a man of a certain age had presented himself and had hired the house just as it stood, including, of course, the back building and the lane which ended in the Rue de Babylon. He had had the secret openings of the two doors to this passage repaired. The house, as we have just mentioned, was still very nearly furnished with the justice's old fitting. The new tenant had ordered some repairs, had added what was lacking here and there, had replaced the paving stones in the yard, bricks in the floors, steps in the stairs, missing bits in the inlaid floors, and the glass in the lattice windows, and had finally installed himself there with a young girl and an elderly maidservant, without commotion, rather like a person who was slipping in, than like a man who was entering his own house. The neighbours did not gossip about him, for the reason that there were no neighbours. This unobtrusive tenant was Jean Valjean, the young girl was Cosette. The servant was a woman named Toussaint, whom Jean Valjean had saved from the hospital and from wretchedness, and who was elderly, a stammerer, and from the provinces, three qualities which had decided Jean Valjean to take her with him. He had hired the house under the name of M. Fauchelevent, independent gentleman. In all that has been related heretofore, the reader has doubtless been no less prompt than Thénardier, to recognize Jean Valjean. Why had Jean Valjean quitted the convent of the Petit Picpou? What had happened? Nothing had happened. It will be remembered that Jean Valjean was happy in the convent, so happy that his conscience finally took the alarm. He saw Cosette every day. He felt paternity spring up and develop with him him more and more. He brooded over the soul of that child. He said to himself, that she was his, that nothing could take her from him, that this would last indefinitely, that she would certainly become a nun, being there too gently incited every day, that thus the convent would henceforth the universe for her as it was for him, that he should grow old there, and that she should grow up there, that she would grow old there, and that he should die there. That, in short, delightful hope, no separation was possible. On reflecting upon this, he fell into perplexity. He interrogated himself. He asked himself if all that happiness were really his, if it were not composed of the happiness of another, of the happiness of that child which he, an old man, was confiscating and stealing, if that were not theft. He said to himself that this child had a right to know life before renouncing it, that to deprive her in advance 
and in some sort without consulting her, of all joys, under the pretext of saving her from all trials, to take advantage of her ignorance of her isolation, in order to make an artificial vocation germinate in her, was to rob a human being of its nature, and to lie to God. And who knows, if when she came to be aware of all this some day, and found herself a nun to her sorrow, Cosette would not come to hate him. A last, almost selfish thought, and less heroic than the rest, but which was intolerable to him. He resolved to quit the convent. He resolved on this. He recognized with anguish the fact that it was necessary. As for objections, there were none. Five years' sojourn between these four walls of disappearance had necessarily destroyed or dispersed the elements of fear. He could return tranquilly among men. He had grown old, and all had undergone a change. Who would recognize him now? And then, to face the worst, there was danger only for himself, and he had no right to condemn Cosette to the cloister for the reason that he had been condemned to the galleys. Besides, what is danger in comparison with the right? Finally, nothing prevented his being prudent and taking his precautions. As for Cosette's education, it was almost finished and complete. His determination once taken, he waited an opportunity. It was not long in presenting itself. Old Fauchelevent died. Jean Valjean demanded an audience with the revered prioress, and told her that having come into a little inheritance at the death of his brother, which permitted him henceforth to live without working, he should leave the service of the convent and take his daughter with him. But that, as it was not just that Cosette, since she had not taken the vows, should have received her education gratuitously, he humbly begged the reverend prioress to see fit that he should offer to the community, as indemnity for the five years which Cosette had spent there, the sum of five thousand francs. It was thus that Jean Valjean quitted the convent of the perpetual adoration. On leaving the convent, he took into his own arms the little valise, the key to which he still wore on his person, and would permit no porter to touch it. This puzzled Cosette, because of the odour of embalming which proceeded from it. Let us state at once that this trunk never quitted him more. He always had it in his chamber. It was the first, and only thing sometimes, that he carried off in his moving when he moved about. Cosette laughed at it, and called this valise is inseparable, saying, I am jealous of it. Nevertheless, Jean Valjean did not reappear in the open air without profound anxiety. He discovered the house in the Rue Plumet, and hid himself from sight there. Henceforth he was in the possession of the name Ultime Fauchelevent. At the same time he hired two other apartments in Paris, in order that he might attract less attention than if he were to remain always in the same quarter, and so that he could, at need, take himself off at the slightest disquietude which should assail him, and, in short, so that he might not again be caught unprovided as on the night when he had so miraculously escaped from Javert. These two apartments were very pitiable, poor in appearance, and in two quarters which were far remote from each other, the one in the Rue de l'Ouest, the other in the Rue de l'Homme Arme. He went from time to time, now to the Rue de l'Homme Arme, now to the Rue de l'Ouest, to pass a month or six weeks, 
without taking Toussaint. He had himself served by the porters, and gave himself out as a gentleman from the suburbs, living on his funds, and having a little temporary resting place in town. This lofty virtue had three domiciles in Paris for the sake of escaping from the police. Chapter 2 Jean Valjean as a National Guard However, properly speaking, he lived in the Rue Plumet, and he had arranged his existence there in the following fashion. Cosette and the servant occupied the pavilion. She had the big sleeping room with the painted pier glasses, the boudoir with the gilded fillets, the justice's drawing room furnished with tapestries and vast armchairs. She had the garden. Jean Valjean had a canopy bed of antique damask in three colours and a beautiful Persian rug purchased in the Rue de Figuere Saint-Paul at Mother Gauchet's, put into Cosette's chamber. And in order to redeem the severity of these magnificent old things, he had amalgamated with his bric-a-brac all the gay and graceful little pieces of furniture suitable to the young girls, an etageret, a bookcase filled with gilt-edged books, an inkstand, a blotting-book, paper, a work-table encrusted with mother-of-pearl, a silver-gilt dressing-case, a toilet service in Japanese porcelain, long damask curtains with a red foundation and three colours, like those on the bed, hung at the windows of the first floor. On the ground floor, the curtains were of tapestry. All winter long, Cosette's little house was heated from top to bottom. Jean Valjean inhabited the sort of porter's lodge which was situated at the end of the back courtyard, with a mattress on a folding bed, a white wood table, two straw chairs, an earthenware water jug, a few old volumes on a shelf, his beloved valise in one corner, and never any fire. He dined with Cosette, and he had a loaf of black bread on the table for his own use. When Toussaint came, he had said to her, It is the young lady who is mistress of this house. And you, monsieur? Toussaint replied in amazement. I am a much better thing than a master. I am the father. Cosette had been taught housekeeping in the convent, and she regulated their expenditure, which was very modest. Every day, Jean Valjean put his arm through Cosette's and took her for a walk. He led her to the Luxembourg, to the least frequented walk, and every Sunday he took her to Mass at Saint-Jacques-de-Haut-Pas, because that was a long way off. As it was a very poor quarter, he bestowed alms largely there, and the poor people surrounded him in church, which had drawn upon him Thenardier's epistle to the benevolent gentlemen of the church of Saint-Jacques-de-Haut-Pas. He was fond of taking Cosette to visit the poor and the sick. No stranger ever entered the house in the Rue Plumet. Toussaint brought their provisions, and Jean Valjean went himself for water to a fountain nearby on the boulevard. Their wood and wine were put into a half-subterranean hollow lined with rockwork, which lay near the Rue de Babylon, and which had formerly served the chief justice as a grotto, for at the epoch of follies and little houses, no love was without a grotto. In the door opening on the Rue de Babylon, there was a box destined for the reception of letters and papers, only as the three inhabitants of the pavilion in the Rue Plumet received neither papers nor letters, the entire usefulness of that box, formerly the go-between of a love affair and the confidant of a love-lorn lawyer, was now limited to the tax collector's notices and the summons of the guard. 
for M. Fauchelevent, independent gentleman, belonged to the National Guard. He had not been able to escape through the fine meshes of the census of 1831. The municipal information collected at the time had even reached the convent of the Petit Picpou, a sort of impenetrable and holy cloud, whence Jean Valjean had emerged in venerable guise, and consequently worthy of mounting guard in the eyes of the town hall. Three or four times a year, Jean Valjean donned his uniform and mounted guard. He did this willingly, however. It was a correct disguise which mixed him with everyone, and yet left him solitary. Jean Valjean had just attained his sixtieth birthday, the age of legal exemption. But he did not appear to be over fifty. Moreover, he had no desire to escape his sergeant-major, nor to quibble with the Comte de Laval. He possessed no civil status. He was concealing his name. He was concealing his identity. So he concealed his age. He concealed everything. And, as we have just said, he willingly did his duty as a national guard. The sum of his ambition lay in resembling any other man who paid his taxes. This man had for his ideal within the angel, without the bourgeois. Let us note one detail, however. When Jean Valjean went out with Cosette, he dressed as the reader has already seen, and had the air of a retired officer. When he went out alone, which was generally at night, he was always dressed in a working man's trousers and blouse, and wore a cap which concealed his face. Was this precaution or humility? Both. Cosette was accustomed to the enigmatical side of her destiny, and hardly noticed her father's peculiarities. As for Toussaint, she venerated Jean Valjean, and thought everything he did right. One day her butcher, who had caught a glimpse of Jean Valjean, said to her, that's a queer fish. She replied, He's a saint. Neither Jean Valjean, nor Cosette, nor Toussaint ever entered or emerged except by the door on the Rue de Babylon. Unless seen through the garden gate, it would have been difficult to guess that they lived in a Rue Plumet. That gate was always closed. Jean Valjean had left the garden uncultivated in order not to attract attention. In this, possibly, he made a mistake. End of Book 3, Chapters 1 and 2 Recording by Algie Pug, Perth, Western Australia